0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Brewer, I'm one of the pastors here at Hope, and I am so thrilled to hear, as the search team was announced, I can, if you're wondering, kind of how's that feel if you're sitting there and they're talking and you're the lead pastor and they're talking about searching for the next lead pastor, I can tell you that a um, little bit more emotional than I thought it'd be, especially seeing Jordan up talking as when we started the Hope Fellowship was a freshman at Elmhurst College, a new Christian, um, and just love seeing, though, how the Lord so powerfully works. And so it just, the, so the feeling is, is one of great joy because seeing people who love this church and love one another and seek to magnify Christ together, that God is going to continue to do that and he's going to continue to work here. And so it fills me with great joy. And, um, and I thought to myself, so how am I going to transition from feeling a little bit emotional and excited and so full of joy? And I thought, Let's talk about the Bengals and let's talk about Super Bowl. So, if we are going to be, in pro- we're in the process of moving to Cincinnati, where Jen's from. And so, if you know anything about Cincinnati, you know Cincinnati fans are a little crazy. I my family's all from Downstate Illinois, but have uh, grown up at various times in Ohio. So I've always had this kind of uh, Bears first, then Bengals, Browns, Cubs first, then Reds. Never the Indians, especially in the World Series. And so, uh, so we're I I so there's the transition who day let's go uh let's look at uh Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. Let me go ahead and read verses 12 through 17. And then we're going to focus just on three verses, 13, 14, and 15 here this morning. Uh, Jared's going to be preaching next week. We have a chance Jen and I and the girls are going to get away for a little bit next week. And then we'll finish out uh, at the end of February uh, in these last two verses in verses 16 and 17. Um, So Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 12 Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive And above all above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony through him. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege that we have to open up your word, to consider truth about who you are, to think about who we are in light of this great salvation that you've given to us in Christ, to think about how you have changed us and given us a new heart, how you help us be who we already are in Jesus. Because of his work in us. And so, Father, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, will be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1982, Steven Spielberg produced and directed one of the most well known and beloved movies ever to hit theaters E.T., The Extra Terrestrial. It was an instant sensation. And like Star Wars, it spawned a number of toys and products. And one product, however, has become infamous as an example of one of the worst product launches in history. It was a game that looked great on paper, but it never really quite made it in the real world. And at the time, Atari, the leader in video games, spent $21 million to purchase the rights to E.T. And then they spent another $5 million to market it. The problem was despite all the money spent on buying the rights and marketing the game they rushed it to store shelves with only 5 weeks of development supposedly Steven Spielberg himself played and approved of the game but developers didn't field test the game and so uh, report it was before it was released and so reports began to trickle in of impossible gameplay and ET getting stuck in pits and and if you were if you You're old enough to have played played Atari. You know that E.T. is in kind of that video game console. It was really just kind of a few blocks that you kind of went, yeah, that kind of looks like E.T., I guess. But this reports of these impossible gameplays made it have just kind of this uh, reputation. Cartridges were returned. The game sat unsold on store shelves and the sad expensive mistake ended in the dead of night in New Mexico when millions of Atari cartridges, ET cartridges, were driven out into the desert and buried. Some say that it was actually, literally, they did an archaeological dig, literal archaeological dig to find them recently. And uh, some say it was the beginning of the end for Atari, actually, who would post a record loss that year and they would end up selling the company. It looked good on paper. It had all the right characters, all the right pieces. But when it came down to it, when it left the programmer's desktop, it actually failed out in the real world. Well, what I want us to do as we come to Colossians 3 again here this morning is I I don't want that to happen in our Christian lives. That we look good on paper, that we think the right things, that we believe the right things, that we know the right things, that we have the right knowledge and understanding... But our faith never really seems to make it out in the real world when it's field-tested in our relationships. The Apostle Paul is showing us here that we who are in Jesus, who we are in Jesus, should be evident to others in how we live. Our attitudes and what we know should be working out in our real-life actions. And so as we've been saying as we've gone through Colossians chapter 3, be who you already are in Jesus. Be or live like who you already are in Jesus. And so my whole aim here this morning is that you see how God intends for our understanding about who we are in Christ to meaningfully impact our actions, especially towards others. That there might be meaningful relationships being built because of who we are in Jesus, our attitude about who we are and is impacting our actions towards others. So here on this Super Bowl Sunday, let's get in and look at the three-point stance to being ready in relationships. See what I did there? That was exciting. So the three-point stance in being ready for relationships in our attitudes. Number one, a forbearing attitude. Number two, a binding love. And number three, a ruling peace. A forbearing attitude, a binding love, and a ruling peace. So let's look at each of these in turn. Let's look first here at a forbearing attitude. And so the foundation, as Paul's going to talk here about forgiveness, the foundation of forgiveness begins with our attitude. And so look at verse 13, and let's pick up right here in the middle of Paul's sentence. He's talking about who, what we are to put on, and then he says in verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so we're called to, as Paul says here, bear with one another. That's the foundation, that's the attitude. And bearing with one another involves patience, it involves tolerance. You know, the New Living Translation, I actually love the way it translates it here and it tries to get at that patience and tolerance in how we bear with somebody else when it says, make allowance for each other's faults. So, so how do we make allowance for each other's faults? How do we bear with one another in the way Paul's talking about here? So before we can talk about forgiveness, how do we think about bearing with one another? You know, first thing we have to do is we need to remember to have the attitude towards another person that we hope that they would have towards us as a brother or sister in Christ. Really, it's, it's the golden rule in action that Jesus says, And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. As you would hope that others bear with you in your weaknesses, in your struggles, so also bear with them. The patience you hope they would give to you, you extend that same patience to them. And so we re- need to remember that to have the attitude in order to bear with one another, to have the attitude with others that we hope they're extending to us. You know, the second way we could really think about how to bear with one another in our attitude means that we're, we're beginning with, we're kind of starting from the place that we don't expect everybody to be just like us. One of the beauties of the church is that God has brought people from all ethnicities all races all places all different temperaments God has made us different with different backgrounds and he brings us into the body of Christ with gifts and with temperaments that the body of Christ needs and so as such we need to provide an allowance for people to be different than us so to bear with somebody means that we begin with the, the understanding that people are going to be different than us, and that's okay. And so to believe the best is to bear with them even if somebody else has it, or when they have a different perspective. But, but this one thing to kind of have the right attitude of how we start to bear with one another. We might ask the question, though, how do we do that practically? Paul continues, and he says, kind of he, he applies it specifically If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, as we've done in the past, I was looking back a little bit when we talked about forgiveness when we looked at Luke chapter 17 and Luke chapter 23. There, there are a lot of directions we can go when we talk about forgiveness, And, and it's too big to be kind of in just this one point. You know, we can talk about forgiveness when somebody's been grievously wronged or sinned against. Forgiveness when somebody doesn't apologize. Forgiveness when there's no closure. Or forgiveness when, when two people, is in, forgiveness is impossible with two people because of one of them has died. And so there's a lot of ways, places we could go. But this morning, let's focus on what this passage is getting at regarding forgiveness. When there's a complaint that somebody has against you or a complaint that you have against somebody else. In that way, this is really kind of a day-to-day forgiveness. It's, it's everyday forgiveness. Because we all have lots of opportunities as we live with family members, as we live with friends, as we talk with others in our workplaces. We have lots of opportunities to forgive like what Paul is talking about here. It's, In other words, it's it's keeping short accounts in how we engage with others and extend forgiveness and also receive forgiveness. But if you notice here, what Paul doesn't do is Paul doesn't get into the weeds about the nature of the complaint. He's he's not saying, well, if it's a big complaint, then do this. Or he's not really kind of saying, like, if you're in the right in the complaint or if you're in the wrong, what Paul's doing is he's going to the motive behind forgiveness, we're to forgive, and he says it very clearly, you must forgive. But the motive he gives, it isn't just kind of how the world might forgive or kind of, I, I read something this week that was interesting. They said, when most people talk about forgiveness, they have a very vague, in the world, speaking, broadly speaking, they have a very broad, a vague understanding about what forgiveness actually means. But not so in the New Testament. We're to forgive, Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven us. And he brings us to the forgiveness of Jesus that he's given to us so that in the same way we're forgiven of our sins, we're also to forgive. And so having the attitude of Christ then helps us to begin with forgiveness in the right place. And so if you look back at verse 12, Paul said, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You know, last week we said this, essentially clothing ourselves in Christ, as Paul talks about in other places, you know, having the attitude of Christ as we put on Christ in a compassionate heart and being gracious and kind is also to extend forgiveness in the same way that the gracious and kind and compassionate Savior has forgiven us. And so in that way, the patience and the forbearance of God towards us is the example that we need to have in the forefront of our minds with how we love and how we interact with others. And, and it's what we need to do, Paul says, but it's, he understands it's precisely what our old natures don't naturally do. Look, think about our, how we naturally think about when we have a complaint against someone or someone has a complaint against us. We naturally keep score. We naturally nurse wounds. We grow bitter naturally. We naturally are distant towards others who are distant towards us or where there's a difference of opinion or where there's hurt that needs healing. But what does it mean to forgive? You know, this week also I I read uh, just a brief quote that said the Bible never talks about forgiveness without reconciliation, which means that forgiveness brings restoration in a relationship in a very unique way. When God forgives, he forgave real guilt and restored a relationship between us and God. We were distant, we were enemies with God, we could not draw near to God. He forgave us through Christ, and in that forgiveness then, reconciliation was possible between us and God because of the work he has done. And so likewise, when we forgive we're no longer treating the other people as if there was a barrier in between our relationship. You know Ken Sandy, who's become quite famous writing about being a peacemaker. He summarizes four promises that Christians make when they forgive one another, and, and I put these up on the screen. I'll, pu- I'll put these. I'll post these on our website this week, so you don't have to try to rapidly write them down. But so he's he's summarizing four promises that we're making when we forgive somebody else. So if somebody asks you for forgiveness, you you forgive them, what's that mean? Here's four things he says. I will not dwell on the incident. I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. So when you're saying I forgive you, you're saying I'm not going to dwell on this. I'm not going to bring this incident up again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I think that's really helpful because, again, because forgiveness can feel so broad and so vague, these are some specific things. I'm not going to dwell on it. I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to talk to others about it, and I'm not going to let it stand between us. And what I love about what Ken Sandy is, is pulling out there and picking up is the tone of his, uh, is really the tone of this verse here in Colossians 3 because he's putting it in the first person. He's saying, I. It's not when you're talking about forgiveness. You, you need to do this. It's I. So to be bearing with one another and forgiving one another begins with us, not with us pointing the finger at somebody else. You know, sometimes it can feel like when we're in a place that needs some healing and forgiveness, like it's almost like two gunslingers kind of standing on an old dusty street in the west. And they're both kind of twitching and they're waiting for the first person to make the move. Paul's letting us see here is, and what we need to understand, it does begin with us. So let's start with ourselves. Look again at the end of verse 13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive forgive. Now we're talking again in the context of complaints and disagreements between people. And and if you're if you're looking for a book and you're trying you're struggling with forgiveness I would really recommend a book called, by Chris Bronze. It's, uh, Crossway put it out a number of years ago. It's called Unpacking Forgiveness. It's so helpful because he answers a lot of questions when you're, that you might be naturally asking here. And you might be tempted to think in your mind, wait, 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 wait. We, we're ju- you're just kind of glossing over forgiveness here and this is deep and it's painful in my life. And, and I understand that. And that's why I'm really trying to see this is what Paul's talking about with some especially in just kind of everyday forgiveness complaints But you might need to think about it a little bit more. So I'd really recommend unpacking forgiveness to you. I find it very helpful every time I think about um, forgiveness. And, And here's what Chris Bronze writes in his book when he's talking about kind of the gospel reasoning. We've been forgiven by Jesus, so we forgive. He says this, Christians should always have a disposition of grace towards those who offend them. This is what Jesus modeled on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even when he was dying an excruciating death, and before there was any repentance on the part of those who crucified him, he offered grace. We're to follow his example. I I love that, that. Christians should have the disposition of grace towards those who offend them. We should be bearing with one another. We should be ready to forgive. So Paul here specifically, should be our attitude everywhere, but specifically here, Paul is talking about between believers. And so we should be seeking to bear with someone patiently, recognizing that we all are weak, we all stumble, and that we shouldn't have expectations, that, we're, that we should have the expectation that we're both working from the same foundation of forgiveness in Christ. So we believe the best, we bear with one another, and we believe they want to fight following Christ in this, and I want to be following Christ in this. So that's first, a forbearing um, a forbearing heart. how did I say? It? attitude. That was my first point. Second point here, a binding love, a binding love. Look at verse 14 here. So we're just going to take each verse. We're not going to spend as much time on these next two points as I just did there in the first one. Look at verse 14. And above all these. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, like other places, like 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's placing love in the ultimate position because love should inform everything that we do. But but how do we put on love? Like forgiveness, we have to start at what is the greatest example of love that the world has ever seen, that's ever been demonstrated. And so we start with the character of God. And then, we start, and then we move to how has the character of God informed how he has demonstrated love to us. So we think about the character of God and 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. And it doesn't say love is God, it says God is love. And John Stott in explaining 1 John 4, 8 says, all of God's activity is loving activity. And so it's one of the best and most concise descriptions of the character of God in the Bible because all of his attributes can't be described without this aspect of his character. So God is love. God loves with justice. God's justice is loving. God loves in righteousness. He righteously loves. God is omniscient. He loves omnisciently. God's omniscience is loving. He loves omnipotently. God omnipotently loves. And on and on we go and God's love is gracious. He graciously loves. So when we're called to put on love, this love has to be in light of who God is and the love is also in light of how God has demonstrated his love to us practically. So Ephesians 5.2. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. 5.2, he follows it up and says, says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. So walking in love, putting on love, it means that we're walking in or that we're visibly living out love that we know from Jesus. So as Christians, Our love is then Christ-centered. It's a Christ-motivated love. Walk in love, how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And over and over again, you're gonna see this gospel reasoning that is in the New Testament. That it's not just a command hanging out in space, it's a command that's undergirded by the gospel. It's the centrality of the gospel that then ripples out in who we are and how we live. You might say though, look, I'm not a naturally loving person. I don't really even understand love all that well. I didn't grow up in a loving family where my view of love was twisted from a young age or even I feel so unlovable and so I can't even really enter into thinking too much about love. And that's where we come back to, again to the gospel. You know, Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. and So think about it this way. God demonstrated power when he created the world. He demonstrates his omniscience, that he knows all things, knowable in the galaxy. He he demonstrates his holiness through the word, which talks about his purity, and that there are cherubim kind of covering their faces and flying around and saying, holy, holy, holy. But when God wanted to demonstrate love, you know what God did? He said, I'm going to demonstrate my love for you in Christ, for you, for you, for you. God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. You can personalize that and say, while I was still a sinner, while I was still running from God, God demonstrated his love for us, for me, by sending his son. So we didn't deserve the love of God. None of us did but he gives it to us freely. And so then, the logic then follows, that kind of good news logic follows, we who are undeserving recipients of the love of God were then called to love others. Here's what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. So again, gospel reasoning. Just as we've been loved, so we are to love. Now then, let's put all of that kind of thinking about the character of God and the demonstration of the love of God in Christ in the gospel. Let's kind of read that back into Colossians 3.14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so this love of Christ, Paul's saying, it binds everything together in perfect unity, in perfect harmony. And so he is again talking about our relationships with other people. It makes us, the love of Christ makes us stronger together than would we, we would be apart. You know, last week we talked about the giant sequoias and how they don't have a root system that goes down any deeper than 10 feet, but it spreads out over the, over the forest and it's intertwined with other roots from other sequoias and they're stronger together. Look, When we put on love, and Paul is kind of saying here that there's a, above all he's put on love, which binds everything together, we could think about it like how laminated wood is stronger than just regular hardwood. You might hold a piece of hardwood in your hand like a cherry, a cherry piece of cherry, and think like that's stronger than a bunch of thin strips of cherry that have been glued and laminated together. But actually, the lamination process is, brings greater strength most of the time depending on how well they've been laminating, laminated than just one piece of wood. And so put on love So that there's a tighter bond, because the tighter the bond is between believers, the stronger we are and the more able we are to deepen our love for Christ and for other people and to demonstrate it. And so we should be reminded, the love that we've been shown is the love that we need between others so that we can be strong in Christ. And so we need to be, uh, you know, actually it says here, in perfect harmony, harmony. I actually, I don't like the way he's mixing together the, the metaphors. Harmony's not in the Greek there, which binds everything together in perfect, you could say, unity or in perfection. And so we need to remember this love that binds us together makes us stronger and it's necessary between Christians. And that last, it, it leads us to here, our last point, a ruling peace. A ruling peace. Now look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now here in a couple of weeks we're going to pick up that and be thankful. Because in the next three verses, in each verse, he's going to talk about thankfulness. But when, even though Paul mentions peace in our hearts, his primary aim right here is not just finding inner peace. Now, somehow, sometimes how the New Testament speaks about kind of a peace that passes understanding and it's kind of an inner peace that's happening that's through the Holy Spirit. That's not primarily what he's aiming at here. And so to see that, I want us to break down the second half of the, verse, of the verse because it shows us what kind of peace he's talking about. So look at the second half. He says, "...since as members of one body you were called to peace." So, he's picking up this body metaphor. We are members of one body. And when Paul uses the body metaphor, he's using it to talk about the church. And just like the body, our physical bodies, are unified under one head, this is a reminder that we're united together because we're all in Jesus. And so, over and over again in Colossians, Paul has been talking about that we are united with Christ. It's no longer we who live, like he says in Galatians, but Christ who lives in us. But it's not just us individually. We're all united in Christ, and so we're part of one body with Christ as the head. And so it's a reminder we're united together because we're all in Jesus. You know, you can cut a piece of potato off. You can do a science experiment and put some toothpicks in it. You might have done this when you were in elementary school and put it in some water and you can, it'll start to grow roots and you can plant that little piece of the potato and it'll grow more potatoes. You you can't take, maybe use a gross illustration, you can't take a toenail clipping and and stick it in some dirt and have it grow a new toe. Or, you know, somebody whose leg is amputated, it doesn't grow a new body around the, the leg. It's cut off from the body. It's it's no longer a part of the head. It's And when Paul, Paul's using these body metaphors, it's to help us understand we're united in Christ. We can't exist separately. We need him personally, and we need him together as the body. And so then, when we look back at the beginning of verse 15, when it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, what we should be doing is reading this in light of let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts in the community of believers, in the body of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts in a way that's building up others, that we're together. And so this is a peace that must mark the body of Christ. Look, one of the worst witnesses for the world is to see a group of fighting Christians. You know, God has given peace. His calls for that peace To rule over us individually and corporately. You know, so if we look at that phrase there, it's not just peace generally, it's the peace of Christ. It's the peace of Christ that's based on his finished work. Earlier in Colossians, Paul wrote, we have been reconciled, he has reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer opposed to Him, and we're no longer opposed to Him as king and making our, by making ourselves king. And so it's the peace of Christ. And he says, "Let the peace of Christ of Christ, it's a peace that belongs to Jesus, who says to us, "My peace I give to you," John 14. In Ephesians he says, "He himself is our peace." And he preaches peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. And so we all have peace with God, no matter what our backgrounds are, through Jesus. We're united in him. His peace that he gives does pass understanding. And we're at peace with God and he gives us rest. And so therefore, he can say, let that peace rule in your hearts. Let that peace rule in your relationships. You know, if you look at peace in the New Testament, what you're going to see over and over again is you're going to see peace as a description of the character of God, that God is described as the God of peace. And so the God of peace is the God who made peace, who lives at peace with us because of Jesus, and now he calls us to be ruled by that same peace in our relationships with one another. And so for peace to rule means let the peace of Christ be the decision maker that controls how you live. Let the peace of Christ help you make decisions and how you're relating to somebody else and when you're tempted to respond in anger or disappointment or, or just whatever myriad of ways we could respond to somebody else, let the peace of Christ be the decision maker that controls how we're living because we want to live at peace with everyone. We want the peace of Christ to reign. You know, Jesus rules with his peace over all of our anxieties. Jesus rules with peace over all the uncertainties in this world. Jesus rules with peace over our weaknesses. And Jesus rules with that same peace over the church. So Paul can say very simply, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so God intends for us, for our Christian lives, to be visible in our relationships with others. They're meant to work. We forgive. We forbear. We love. And we let peace reign so that the body of Christ is built up and God is glorified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that in all of these ways we have thought about the good news of Jesus here this morning. We can recognize how kind you have been to us, how forbearing you have been towards us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you demonstrated your love for us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the way in which you are working in us. You are helping us to live at peace with one another. And so, Father, would you build your church? Would you strengthen your church by us being marked by forgiveness and love and peace? For your glory we pray. And all God's people said, amen.